I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we read the books so that you don't have to and we add our personal opinion. And if you wanted to read the books without hearing about us, I would suggest an audiobook because unfortunately here we do talk. And unfortunately here we do talk in the voices that God gave us. And if you don't like them, I beg you to find happiness somewhere else. Claire, mm-hmm. what, do, what do we have to say up top? That if you wanted merch, I would buy it right now because we're about to sell out of everything and then then it's done forever. Yeah. I mean, there will be more. But a different kind. But it'll be different. Also, if you wanted to buy tickets to our shows, Austin, Dallas, Portland, Seattle, New York is almost out. So I would get those stacked. Lickety split. Claire. Yes. If you were to write a memoir, what would you title the chapter about last week? Wait, I, <laughs> I didn't get married yet. <laughs> now that it's like a new year, I feel like all the things that I was like, okay, I'll put off until 2023 to deal with. I'm getting a lot of emails and I'm starting things. I just got a facial at the beginning of my attempt to have good skin because I've always wanted good skin and I figure now is the only time I can give myself permission to like spend the money it takes to have good skin for me. But I really am like, I'm doing all these wedding things. I'm getting all these wedding emails and I really cannot believe I haven't gotten married yet. I just feel like I thought so much about it and so many people talked about it and there was so much excitement and then it all settled down and I'm like, wait a minute, that thing's still coming up? Like, how could that be possible? It's and I, still not for a while. And like every time somebody's like, oh no, well, we got to get it done. I'm like, I don't know, kind of we don't. It's like almost a year away. And I just like don't understand how people maintain excitement for an event for so long. Like I am an immediate gratification person and I feel like I got engaged. I booked my venue. I got my dress, zip, zap, zap. And now I'm just like... I've moved on. You know, when you sign up for dinner way too far in advance with somebody, and you're like, oh my God, I'm so excited to go to dinner. And then it comes around and you're just like, Jesus Christ, that thing's tonight. I I put it off. <laughs> That's how I feel about literally every plan I've ever made more than two weeks in advance. This is, I'm very excited. If you are listening and you are the person who's paying for this wedding, my mom and my dad, I am genuinely so excited. I'm also genuinely so excited. But at the same time, I am like, I do not know how you can maintain a steady excitement For anything, for over a year, I have too much ADD for something so long term. (laughs) But I'm excited. I I feel like my skin is more hydrated than ever. So at the very least, we've got that. And Ashley, if you were a celebrity, what would you have called last week's chapter of your book? I guess I would call this year, because this episode comes out on February 7th, which is the day after me and Bug's one-year anniversary. Oh, my God. A bug's life indeed. A bug's life as it comes. I don't talk about bug on the main podcast that much. I mostly talk about her on the Patreon, I feel like. Is that true? I don't know. I talk about bug a lot. The podcast is about celebrity memoirs, but I'd say insofar as you talk about yourself, you talk about bug. Well, that's the thing that's crazy is I've only known bug for a year. That's what I was going to say is I feel like I can't talk about myself without talking about bug. I like will think about what I do in my day to day life and like who I am and what I stand for. And I'm like literally just bug. <laughs> but I've only known her for a year. And She's so captured so... you heart, mind and soul. And so I was thinking about it and I was like, wow, our one year anniversary is coming up. I've literally only known her for a year. She has it's such like an... that bright eyes song. And it's like, this is the first day of my life. Yeah. I was born it's right crazy. when I met you. <laughs> And I was thinking about like the way, you know, I really adjusted my life into a little bug. And I was thinking about, I'm like, wow, where will we be next year? Will I have fully folded into just becoming also a dog or will we you are dressed? Will you we grow like, together? You look like you're in bug costume right now. <laughs> you are fully in like furry black outfit. You look just like bug. I can't believe you like bugs. Gravity is pulling you into her 
physically. Literally, what if this time next year, like I'm a bug and she's in this chair podcasting with you? I would sooner die. (laughs) I would sooner die. (laughs) Anyway, this week we have in a reroute of the century, an incredible memoir to talk about. I am so excited. Yeah. For those of you guys who did not catch up on social media, we actually originally read Ginger Duggar of 19 Kids and Counting and other TLC fame, her memoir for this week. And we we, we just couldn't talk about it. It was not the tell-all that people had hoped. It's not the expose that I think she peddled around on the press circuit. It was mostly just, I can sum it up in this sentence. I used to believe in my parents' church, and now I believe in my husband's church. And it was a lot of just like Bible study. It was mostly just, here's a passage from God. yeah. And so we decided, no, we're just going to move our schedule up a week and just do a quick revamp of our plans. So instead, we got to read Cicely Tyson's book a week early, just as I am. And let me tell you what, I would consider this one, uh, read it. We read it so you don't have to, but like also, I'll sum it up right now. We'll sum it up over the next hour, give or take, but then read it. And the reason you know it's a good book is because she starts off saying that she never thought she would write a book. And she would say, well, what do I have to say? And that mindset, the kind of person who thinks that you should live a life first and then tell it later, is the exact mindset of a person who should write a memoir because that means they are a considerate, thoughtful person who wants to like learn and live and not just spout. One thing I like about the winter, the cozy time. Okay, in the summertime, what do you, you're hot, you throw your sheets off the bed and I leap out of bed in the morning eager for sunshine. But in the winter, there's no sunshine. There's no reason to get out of bed. And even more so when you have covered your bed in bowl and branch sheets made with the softest 100% organic cotton you've ever felt. It's the kind of quality you'll feel immediately. So Claire and I both have the signature hem sheets. Claire, what is your favorite thing about them? I love the softness. I mean, I just don't know what else to say. I get in there and I can actually feel the difference on my skin. And I have a lot of different kinds of sheets. And this one really genuinely from the bottom of my heart is my favorite. You and I both got addicted to them. We both have a couple sets of sheets because we're adults. We fill our linens closets properly. And then I just want to wash the bowl and branch ones and put them right back on. I don't want to go through a rotation. That's what I do. Sometimes I'll like sleep with no sheets rather than put on backup sheets so that the next day when I get mine from the wash and fold, I can like put my favorite sheets back on. I have the spruce colored ones. They look so crisp and nice. The signature hem sheets from Bowl and Branch are a bestseller for a reason. Bowl and Branch uses the highest quality threads on earth. Their sheets are made from slow grown organic cotton for superior softness and a better night's sleep. They feel so buttery soft to the touch. They're breathable and they're perfect for both cold and warm months. They're so luxurious. They are loved by three U.S. presidents. Bull and Brand signature sheets come in 10 versatile colors in all sizes from twin up to California king. They're designed to feel incredible for all sleepers and they're made without toxins, free from pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. Best of all, Bull and Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free guarantee with free shipping and returns on all U.S. orders. Make the most of your bedtime with Bowl and Branch sheets. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use the promo code CMBC at BowlandBranch.com. That's BowlandBranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, Branch.com, promo code CMBC. Cicely Tyson was born in New York City, December 19th, 1924. And this is just a crazy fact. She died January 28th, 2021. She was 96. And that was two days after this book came out. 
So this book came out two years ago. She was 96 years old. She died two days later. So it is up to date and it will not be rewritten because... There will not be another chapter unless something fucking crazy happened in those two days. That's incredible. She like waited until she could tell her entire story. Yeah. This book opens with an intro or a foreword from Viola Davis where she tells the story that we got in Viola Davis's memoir where she writes about seeing Cicely Tyson in a movie on TV and like that is what lit her acting bug. Mm -hmm. And then she has this introduction. Somebody would always ask her, when are you going to write your book? And she stole a line from her friend Barbara Jordan and said, when I have something to say. And so the man who is interviewing her from the Washington Post is like, well, I've been talking to you for three hours. It seems like you've got plenty to say. And she says at first she did not want to do an autobiography because she saw it as the story of all the characters she's played and just like the list of awards and basically in IMDb. And it's funny because she says what she doesn't like about an autobiography is very much my complaint about a lot of them when I call them like Wikipedia autobiographies. And I'm like, this was just a list of accolades that I could have looked up anyway. I don't know what hearing it from you adds to the story. Eventually, her manager sits her down and goes, you have to do it. You're talking about a Christmas tree. Everybody thinks they know who Cicely Tyson is, but what they see are the ornaments and the branches, the decorations. They know nothing about the roots. So she decided, like, I want to do that. I want to write just as I am. And the glitter, the ribbons, the garnish, as wonderful as those things are, I have little desire to reflect on them solely. What I'm far more interested in is how my tree, my story, first sprang into existence. How its roots, stretching far beneath the soil, have nourished and anchored me. Even now in the winter of my life, I am just beginning to truly understand my identity. Just as I am is my truth. It's me, plain and unvarnished, with the glitter and the garland set aside. In these pages, I am indeed Cicely, the actress who has been blessed to grace the stage for six decades, yet I am also the church girl who once rarely spoke a word. My story will never be finished, nor should it be, for as long as God grants me breath, I will be living and writing my next chapter. And let me tell you, (laughs) that was not long. It's funny. She says that as long as she's alive, that means she must not have finished her purpose that God has for her. And I'm almost like, I guess God really did want you to write this memoir. He was like, no, you have to tell this story. As soon as they put it on a shelf, he was like, okay. You did it. She also has this line that she repeats a few times. I am a woman who has hurt as immeasurably as I have loved, a child of God divinely guided by his hand. Cicely Tyson was born to two parents from Nevis. They had met actually as children and both separately moved to the United States. Her dad when he was 13 and her mom when she was 23. And they had met here. They had had a crush on each other as kids and reconnected as adults. It was always kind of known that he would go to America, establish himself, and then kind of send for her and they would be husband and wife. She also feels that her mom had this divine prophecy set on her to come to the U.S. because at her confirmation when she was 12 years old, a dove flew into the church and like flew right in front of her mom and everybody ran, but her mom stood still. And the pastor said, this child should not stay here. She should go to America. And so it was kind of just like decreed. So they meet and they get together. So they have a baby named Melrose. And then a year later, they have Cicely. Cicely was named, so she was told, after a little girl who lived next door that her dad thought was very cute. Her mom really wanted a daughter named Miriam. That was very important to her. And she just never got it. It just comes up a lot how much her mom wanted to name someone Miriam. And then she has a little sister named Emily. And the three of them were born all within like three or four years of each other. They're all very close in age. Cicely was born scrawny with a heart murmur, twin liabilities in West Indian culture. So she was a sickly child. And she said that that made her parents very overprotective of her. They were constantly worried about her. They never let her out of their sight. She says at one point she got sick and her mom didn't let her leave her side for a year. So it always felt like Emily, even though she was the younger sister, was the more worldly one because no one was watching her like a hawk. And also Emily seems like she was physically bigger. 
Her dad loved the girls more than the son explicitly. He was very much a girl dad, whereas her mom's favorite was her oldest boy. She loves her dad and they're very close and he's very musical. His cousin is actually the man that the movie Green Book is based on. A fun fact. They come from this family where they have a lot of family living in Harlem with them, living in East Orange in New Jersey and spread out through Brooklyn. So there's like a lot of different families from their island. So they have a community there and they quickly build their little family. They're extremely involved in the church. It's really important to the mom to be upstanding members of the church. It's her dream for her daughters to marry the sons of pastors. She did pretty well in school, but she was painfully shy. It's not simply that I was shy. Mostly I was observant. I paid close attention to details, allowing the passing world and its peculiarities to seep into my pores. I was curious about all of it. So growing up, they're very poor. Both of her parents work constantly to try to keep them fed. And they very much have a home where it's like cleanliness is close to godliness. And their mother takes their presentation very seriously. And she's like, you can be poor, but nobody needs to know it. So before, you know, every single day, they have to hand wash all their clothes. Their house is always spick and span. Her mom always has like a beautiful meal on the table and is like great at hand sewing all their clothes and stuff. But she's also working two or three jobs at a time. And her dad runs a fruit stand and they're doing everything they can to get by but it is very difficult but she says they didn't feel it because they were so cared after education was paramount each of us had a mission and for my siblings and me that was to excel in our studies my parents viewed education as a passport out of poverty a corridor towards prosperity that hadn't been possible for them in nevis they were very controlling though and even as a child i had a strong sense of autonomy a feeling that i belonged first and foremost to myself my mother begged to differ. When I challenged her authority, she'd pick up whatever object was near her, be it a wooden clothes hanger or an extension cord, and reassert her reign. In place of a timeout, there was a knockout, a single blow that could send you to your knees. So growing up, it was like she was mostly quiet in public, sassy at home. And then every once in a while, she would have a taste of being on stage and she would just be transformed. So like when she's nine years old, she goes to a friend's church where they sing and she brings that song back to her church and she like leads the entire congregation in song in a way that everybody was like, where did that come from? You're just she a little like child. She gets carried out of the church on her dad's shoulders. People are screaming and clapping. Church was the one place where my timidity fell away. The deacon's wives often staged little plays based on Bible stories for the youth to take part in. More than once, I was cast in the leading role of Mary, mother of Jesus. The spirit, twisting and flailing and arching its back, had shuddered through me, and as it did, my shyness vanished. All I knew is that when I was up there on my chair, my Mary Jane's dangling, my voice rising up from someplace deep within me, I felt a rush. So the other thing about her is that she's psychic. Yeah. And this I really believe. <laughs> her mom is psychic and she is psychic. She has known that she's had a sixth sense and innate ability to see, hear, feel, and taste smells even before they happen. So it's manifested in several ways throughout her life where she'll just like see something or have a dream about something and then it happens and her mom has it too so an example is her mom will be like I had a dream last night that you fell through a window don't clean the windows today and then that next day they were playing with the doors in their apartment and they slammed a door shut and the window broke and cut her arm open yeah or like in this premonition she had she smelled smoke and so she went to her neighbor's house and was like I smell smoke is anything on fire and like the next day her neighbor's house burnt down freaky deaky Another funny fact about this book that gets me is <laughs> that her nickname in her family is Sis. And you may be saying, of course it is. Her name is Cicely. It's for a different reason. <laughs> they call her sister. And so sometimes in the book, it's spelled S-I-S when her mom is talking to her or when her dad is talking to her. But when her friends or like lovers are talking to her and they call her Sis out of affection, it's C. 
C-I-C. And it just is funny that it's like the same nickname for two very different reasons. Yeah. So she talks about her dad and she says, my father was a study in contrast. Even as a boy, he brimmed with the vitality that drew my mother to him. Magnetism coursed through his arteries. Your father is a star, my cousin Betty would often say. He was great at music. He was handsome. He dressed impeccably. And he was just like the star of the show. But she says, my father also had an unpleasant face when I'm still trying to reconcile with this other more admirable one. Beneath dad's charisma lived an underbelly of compulsiveness, a tendency to allow his passions, virtuous and vile, to overtake him. So he cheats on the mom a lot. And then sometimes he comes home and he never drank, but, you know, when he was caught or when he was feeling guilty, he would lash out violently. And they would fight. The mom and the dad would get into huge arguments in the bedroom and Cicely would wake up and get between them. And weirdly enough, her two siblings never seemed to wake up from the fighting. They all shared one rollout bed in the living room. Even when the fighting spilled out into the living room, and it seems like, of course, two adults screaming at each other would wake up whoever's in that room. But she says her siblings slept through all of it. It only seemed to affect her. She seems like a very observant, like sensitive child who picked up on everything. This feels like an obvious people are shoving each other in a room. Most people would notice. But I think in general, out of her two siblings, she is somebody who is very empathetic and picks up on the nuances of the humanity around her. Yeah, I guess I think one thing that's really interesting about her book is the way that she's able to hold complex emotions. She's able to sit here and say, I loved my dad and I hated the way he treated our mom and the way he would like come down on us in anger and we feared him, but we loved him. And she'll just always hold those feelings. I understand that some people need to organize things in order for their own safety, but I feel like we have a tendency right now to like just really flatten emotions. And so the way that not only is she able to do that for herself to say like, overall, I love my dad, but there were certain things that I could not ignore. She's able to do that for him too, to say, I know he loved us, but he was raised in this culture and in this way and dealt with all of these traumas. She is able to look at every single person and be like, the way they're coming at this is not one dimensional. Just as we each have more than one face, we also carry an array of conflicting emotions. I revered my father then and now. At the same time, I could not stand how his infidelity humiliated my mother, how his outbursts frightened me to my core. And yet this was the same devoted father who balanced me on his knee, the man who celebrated me, his little string bean every chance he got. In the days my parents clashed, I'd often notice another of my mom's dispositions, the reflective one. She would sit in her rocking chair in the bedroom, shaking her head and repeating under her breath, this is life, this is life. That's why I found it so bewildering when she'd occasionally chuckle. Why are you laughing, mom? I'd ask. Child, she'd whisper as she pulled another nut from a bag. I'm laughing at my own calamities. I was nine the autumn my world cracked into two. One early morning in 1934, I awakened still a child. When the sun closed its eyes on that day, my girlhood, like a fragile vase, had toppled from a table ledge and smashed onto the floor. So what had happened is, of course, her dad is constantly having these affairs. And one of these affairs was with a woman who went to their church. And I guess her mom begged and pleaded for the dad to end the affair, and he refused. Everyone knew about it. It was Yeah, it was just humiliating for her. And so one day after church... They, like, came to blows, and she started screaming, stay away from my husband. They got into a fight. The kids got involved. They were, like, all throwing the rocks kids, at this woman. Emily Melrose and Cicely picked up all these rocks and were just stoning this woman in front of the church until the pastor stoning. got involved. <laughs> I think they, like, one or two. They were throwing a small – but anyway, so they were broken up, and, of course, he still wouldn't stop having this affair, and things were getting tense every day. Like, this was one of the worst situations in their home. One day, he asked Cicely to do his laundry. The mom stopped caring for him at all. She she stopped. She was like, okay, 
if you won't stop having this affair, I no longer do your laundry, cook for you, all of these yeah, things. Yeah. So she was taking care of her kids, but she wasn't going to take care of a cheating husband. And so he had asked Cicely to do his laundry one night and she had forgotten. And when she woke up and he was like, where was it? He started screaming and he took everything in the house and he was breaking it and smashing it and destroying it. Cicely's mom just took the three kids, dropped them off with a friend. When she came to pick them up that night, they had moved. She had been secretly storing away $500 in a mattress that he didn't know about and couldn't get to and just put down a deposit on a new apartment, put all their stuff in a box. Luckily, their pastor had a side gig as a mover, so he let her use the van. He completely moved the family. And that night, when the father came home, they had left. First of all, one thing that she thinks the dad never banked on is that the mom would say something. Like he just, I think, thought that he could keep on with his ways. And this just was the way of the world. You know, she would take care of the house and he would have sex with other women. And he did not expect there to be an outburst at church. He did not expect her to ever actually leave. And when it happened, there was just nothing he could do. He brought it on himself And he quietly like acknowledged it. She called him that night and gave him the address and he actually came over and put the new lock on their door. And she says he was filled with tears because he knew he couldn't, he had brought this on himself. He couldn't fight it. He couldn't fight her. He had lost her and it was his own fault. To this moment, I'm in awe of how my mom made it through the day. Please don't tell me anything about black women, about our extraordinary fortitude and resilience because I know precisely who we are. Beneath the burdensome weight of abuse and degradation, my mother strained her spine, summoned the strength of God and her ancestors, and bravely stepped ahead. She felt as frightened as any woman would, felt her stomach climbing into her throat, but when circumstances called on her to rise, she answered with nary a quake in her voice. Without realizing it, my father had crossed a red line of demarcation, the one labeled maternal instinct, and when he blazed his way out of our front door, my mother found a way to march us through to a new one. That is power, that is tenacity, that is an oak. I really love that line. I saw a lot of parallels, maybe just because I haven't read it last week, but I think in this book, you guys will see, her and her mom come to blows quite often. But something both her and Pam do is they'll describe their mother's actions, but never describe their mothers as bad. And like you as a reader can be like, ooh, that's not great. Or, oh, I see the implications that had, or I see the consequences on their life. But they never describe their mothers negatively. They just like let the actions speak for themselves. And that way they're never really condemning it. And it's always done with this understanding of where they came from. Compared to a lot of our other memoirists who will sit there and talk so much shit about their moms who are just doing the like yeah that's the thing about what I was pointing out earlier the way she can really come at every single person's perspective with so much grace because she knows culturally and systemically and just the specifics of her mother's life etc like there is only so much that people can do with the cards they're dealt and that's just like uh, something I noticed in both memoirs that I really liked Mm -hmm. like there is a way to say this is what happened to me with love and compassion for the people who made wrong choices in regard to you or like have done things that have hurt you without being like, they're a monster. I mean, Matthew Perry is like, one time me and my mom were playing a game and she answered the phone and now I'm addicted to drugs because of her. (laughs) I mean, there is the very relatable thing and obviously this is like, really neutralizing a complicated topic but there's a like I'm mad at my mom but I love my mom like there's you're allowed to say like okay objectively looking at human behavior you're like the person who raises you even doing the best they can there's a chance they push a wrong button here and there and and you have problem like there's stuff that you wish was different but that doesn't mean you hate them that doesn't mean they did something wrong they didn't do it on purpose They were trying the hardest they could with what they had. 
I lay there quietly weeping next to Emily. Much as I knew my father's affair was the true reason for our family's dissolution, I also felt deeply responsible. It was my forgetfulness that had catapulted him into the fury overturned our world. However untrue I now know this is, it was what I felt as a girl. So fun fact, before she saw her own world premiere in Sounder, <laughs> she had only been to the movies one other time and she did not like it. So she just didn't go back for what is that? 40 years when she was still with the dad and the dad was on one of his tears, she was like, you know, what? I'm just going to take the kids to the movies because that's like a quiet place we can go and not deal with this right now. And King Kong was too scary. And she was like, movies? And not for me. <laughs> then as she gets older, one day she goes uptown to meet her mom at a store and she knows her mom works several jobs. Her mom has one more steady job as a housekeeper, but it turns out when she's off work, if she gets off early, she'll go stand with women to maybe pick up a freelance gig. And there's a line of women and they'll stand and they'll just wait to maybe be offered another job. So she's going up to meet her mom to buy Easter accessories and she walks past this line of women and then she realizes her mom is one of the women. And it's a very sobering experience for her. These women were lined up to be considered for work, inspected as if on an auction block. The era I grew up in both deepened my racial wound and soothed it with the healing balm of the arts. My childhood spanned the 1920s and 30s, two of the most economically memorable and culturally rich decades in U.S. history. So she talks about going through both the Depression and the Harlem Renaissance and how it really pulled her in every direction and like helped her later in life clarify her purpose, which we'll get to later. But in acting, she really walked into it with a very clear mission of how she wants to represent black women on screen. So she gives like a history lesson on the 20s and 30s. And the black history specifically in those two decades. The nation's shifting time paralleled the spirit of change in our house. As my family fell apart, the basic rhythm of our existence returned, but it swayed to a more sorrowful tempo. The city pulsated with revival, and as a child, I could feel the fervor. Exuberance danced its way up and down 125th, Harlem's bustling Main Street. So she goes into her new reality with her parents split up. Her mom would occasionally lash out, and she realized mom's rage had little to do with my dad's tenderness towards me and everything to do with how deeply he'd hurt her. So I think her mom was extra hard on Cicely because Cicely looked the most like her father. She called her father face because she said that she looked so much like her dad. While she understood and respected why her mom left her dad, her sister Emily actually blamed her mom for leaving. And she says it's because she and Melrose had slept through much of the conflict I'd witnessed. What Emily did see was enough to unnerve her. And yet, however poisonous her family dynamic was, she still desperately wanted her father there with us at the center of it. In retrospect, I understand Emily's assessment, not as an indictment of my mother, but as a way to cope with her own anguish. And I think that's like another example of the way Cicely really looks at every single person in her life. And even if she's hurt by them, disagrees with them, she's like, I understand where they were coming from. We were all doing the best we could. So one thing in her family is that with distance, I mean, with 80, 90 years of distance, I think she's spent a lot of time really giving grace to her family and to everyone in her life. But in this time, they did not talk to each other. Even with her sister, she says there was a lot of our internal life that we just did not discuss with each other. And one of the most damaging ways that this has shown through is that in terms of like womanhood and growing up, there was no conversations held in this house. So she gets her period, but discussing my body changing would have meant reckoning with the inevitable. Her firstborn girl, the once sickly child she'd for so long kept so close, had grown out of her arms and into a new season. We did not talk about periods or breasts. We did not talk about sex. She just doesn't know anything that she doesn't hear from her younger sister or friends at school or whatever, which is just minimal conversation. So she gets her period. She doesn't really know what that means. And her mom just says, stay away from boys. 
I will talk to you when I come back. She hasn't gotten back to me yet. In the following months, when my flow kept returning for a curtain call, I eventually figured out the whole period business on my own. One thing when we read these women's books, I guess the other one was Tyra Banks's mom. When I hear about how women like pre-1975 had to deal with periods and it's like a full apparatus that you would use to jump off a bridge. It's like a bungee jump contraption. You're like hanging a clothesline around your waist and like pinning underpinnings. It did make me think how crazy it must have been when tampons were first put on the market. I would be like witchcraft to get that away from me. I literally, if I had been here pre-tampon, I would have been like, there's no fucking way. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what do you even do with that? So she gets her period. No one talks about it. Her mom says stay away from boys. She gets a crush on a boy named Horace and they start going on walks around the block together and her mom is like, stay away from Horace. She's only allowed to date and then marry one type of person and that is a preacher's son. Right. If their dad does not work for the church, it's a no-go. And Horace makes her feel pretty, and she really loves that about him. He's the first person who's ever made her feel pretty. He, like, traces the sides of her face and says, your face is shaped like a heart. I feel like I would really fall for that. Anyway, her mom says, you cannot see Horace. So she goes, I'm not allowed to see you anymore. But my friend Elizabeth is pretty cool. So she introduces Horace to Elizabeth. They got married. That was the summer of 1939. Horace and Elizabeth dated throughout high school and eventually married and raised a family together. Both of them, my maiden crush and neighbor, are long gone now. All of these years later, I'm left with questions, the specks of wistfulness and regret in the spaces between them. How might my life have turned out if I'd stay with the beau who'd stolen my heart as he traced it with the shape of his thumbs? So instead, she's set up with their pastor's son, Kenneth, and... It's one of those things where they're introduced at church. He's good looking enough. She doesn't feel for him the way she felt for Horace, but she can already tell the decision has been made. Yeah. Her mom is like, this is your boyfriend now. When he came over for the first time to her house, my mom met him at the door. So I hear you're the son of the minister, she said with a smile bright enough to light up Times Square. And I, recognizing the absolute delight on their faces, knew an unspoken understanding had been reached, an agreement not requiring my consent. So she starts hanging out with Kenneth because it's clear that she's supposed to. And one day when they're at his house, he starts kissing her. And it happens very quickly. Our caressing grew more intense and he lifted my dress. I recoiled slightly, but before I could back away, he was inside me. He immediately exploded. So she leaves and is like, I really have to go. She's not sure what happened. She says, I thought about the pregnant woman my friend Fanny Lou had pointed out in the street. Was this how the baby got inside of her stomach? Maybe, but I was not certain. Kenneth and I couldn't have had sex, I reasoned. We were standing up with most of our clothes on. And although I didn't fully understand the mechanics of sex, I did sense that we'd done something my mother would have prohibited. A small part of me felt scared that perhaps we'd stumbled across a red line that I had not known was there. Nature had a different take. A few weeks later, when my period went missing, mom, fearing the likely but praying for the improbable, booked a doctor's appointment. After I had been unexamined, the doctor pulled my mother aside into the hallway. Your daughter is pregnant. She's probably almost a month along. Silence. There was like no discussion. She's like an abortion wasn't even a possibility. That was not something anyone even said. It wasn't even like, can she or can't she? I didn't even know about it. She says they did not talk about her being pregnant for a very long time. Like eventually she's like, I guess my brother and sister figured it out because I was literally pregnant, but nothing was discussed in the family and she didn't know if her father even knew. Upon learning I was pregnant, I spent two full weeks just trying to figure out how it had happened. Sex, as I'd misunderstood it, necessitated pleasure. What I'd experienced was the swift ascent of my hemline and a three-second burst of warm liquid. She also talks about how she was so worried that her mother was so ashamed of her, and yet she realizes when she does the math that they must have gotten pregnant with her brother before they were married, and that her grandmother had been pregnant with her mother as an unwed girl, and then actually the father was killed at sea before the baby was even born. So she's like, 
I realized that actually I was just continuing the generational pattern that my mom was so desperate to break and yet never like gave her the tools to break it. Yeah. So she does harbor a lot of resentment. She talks a lot lot about how her mom would just shake her head and if only you'd waited and she would think to herself, if only you'd told me. Like she just didn't know enough to protect herself. And so her mom says when you turn 18, you and Kenneth will get married. So she turns 18 in December and the baby is born in February. So right after her 18th birthday, she and Kenneth are wed. She says everyone at the wedding was crying. It was like a funeral because nobody wanted it. Something crazy is that she was going to school full time. So she went to school up until the birth of the child. And then she would run home during lunch, nurse the baby, and then leave a bottle of milk to feed the baby before she got back at 3 p.m. And they didn't find out about the baby until somebody found an invitation to the baby's christening. She took two weeks off after she gave birth, and then she would just go every day. Kenneth would take care of the baby during the day. She would take care of the baby at night and stay at her mom's house. And then she would have graduated on time fully if she hadn't gotten narked on. Her mother insisted that they had the ceremony in May. Cecily had wanted to wait until after school was out, but the invites were sent out. A boy from school got a hold of one and turned her into the principal. What mattered was the school's strict policy. Students were not permitted to indulge in what was considered adult behavior. I'm sure some of my classmates were sexually active, but the proof was in the pregnancy. And once it was revealed that I was a mother, that revelation immediately revoked my status as a student and made that year's credits null and void. Devastating as it was, I felt undeterred in my quest to earn my diploma. Another probably very important thing to note is that the world as a whole did not know that she had a daughter until this book came out. She does not talk about her daughter publicly. In the book, she calls her daughter Joan, but her daughter's name is not Joan. She's kept her daughter anonymous, and this was kind of a bombshell with this book. So she and Kenneth move in together. She finishes school right as Joan is about one, and when Joan turns two, she leaves him. She realizes, this is not what I want. As Kenneth and I settled into married life, a road of tedium and regret stretched before me. The thought of pretending, of living out my mother's dream instead of discovering my own, felt utterly soul-destroying. She just leaves one day, doesn't even explain it to him. We did speak by phone after I left, and he pleaded for me to reconsider, begged me to allow him to remain a part of our daughter's world. But I was firmly in my decision that we separate entirely. Kenneth was a good man, but it would have done neither of us a favor for me to languish in a relationship my spirit could not take. Maya Angelou's mother had it right. I would have ruined three lives. So this is something very complicated because I do think that taking the daughter away and saying like, you just won't have a father in your life, that's the better situation when it seemed that there was a father who wanted to be present is fucked up. But on the other hand, she left and took the baby five blocks away. There was a father who had wanted to be there. He could have been there. Yeah, he could have come back and tried harder. I will say what I do think is true is to write it in retrospect 70 years later and say Maya Angelou's mom was right. It would have ruined three lives. If I saw that my mom was like, knowing you would have ruined your dad's life, so I had to take you away, that's something that didn't need to be said. Yeah. I do think that that's something that I can imagine reading would be very hurtful for her daughter. Yes. I understand being like, I did what I thought was best at the time. And later she does say she has like a lot of regrets about the way she raised her daughter. And she's somebody who will like acknowledge I made decisions that I don't know were the best decision, but I did the best I could at the time. I do think to stick by that quote, she would have ruined all of our lives, is like something that could have been left out. It's definitely tough because it's one of those things where there's no right decision. So she moves back in with her mom. She and her mom are clashing quite heavily. So after about a year or two, she can't stand living with her mom anymore. And a doctor literally says, if you don't get out of there, you're going to have a nervous breakdown. Your blood pressure is too high from fighting with your mom every week. 
So she moves in with her aunt who lives up in Mount Vernon in the Bronx and begins a job as like a typist. So she is taking all the secretary work she can find. And she says, between my aunt and my other nearby family, my village rose up to help me care for Joan while I pieced together a living for us. So she eventually ends up with a steady job at the Red Cross. And right as she's starting, right as the position goes from temp to permanent, it's because the current secretary is retiring. So Cecily attends her retirement party where after 30 years at that desk, she is given a watch. And Cecily sits there and she's looking at it and she's like, 30 years you toiled away here and they gave you a watch? This doesn't seem like a thing I want. Yeah. And she says that out loud and everybody's shocked that she would say that. They're like, we thought that watch was the best thing in the world. So she's sitting there. She's typing. She's still at this job, but she will regularly speak up and be like, I'm not going to die at this job just so you guys know. And they're like, sure thing. So she is cobbling together as many jobs as she possibly can to make money for her daughter. And something she does make note of is that she loved to give her daughter everything she could materially. It was really important for her daughter to have like the nicest clothes. And she like went out and found some carriage that was almost impossible to find because it was World War II. She's back with her mom. After seven years of living with her aunt, she's like, okay, I got to get it out of your hair. But, you know, out of one woman's hair into another. So she's living with her mom again and they're butting heads. But one day she comes home and it's 10 p.m. and Joan is outside playing. She's 10 years old and her mom is watching her from the window. And she yells at her mom and is like, why'd you let her out there? That's so dangerous. And I thought, our strife must be spilling over onto her treatment of Joan, I thought. Or maybe after raising her own three children, mom had understandably grown very weary with caretaking. Whatever had prompted her strange behavior, I knew her arrangement had to end. I did not discuss this with my mother, nor did I ask for her opinion. I simply made a grown-up decision, one markedly absent of her input. I would secure my baby's care. I didn't know what I would do, but I was convinced I must. So what she ends up doing is actually finding an upstate boarding school. Yeah, she sends Joan to boarding school, and it is something that she looks back on, not sure if it was the right thing to do. That was that. In the fall of 1953, at the start of my daughter's fifth grade year, I packed her belongings and took her on the train upstate. So she's doing all these typing jobs, and she loves going out on her lunch break and running into the department store, Lord & Taylor, and just looking at all the things. And one day, she's running over to the store on her lunch break, and a man stops her and says, are you a model? And she's like, no. And he's like, do you want to be a model? And she's like, how? And he's like, go to modeling school. And she's like, okay. She starts calling all these modeling agencies. They're all white modeling agencies. And she's like, that's not going to work. And then someone she knows knows someone who mentioned a black modeling school up in the Bronx. So she enrolls immediately. She gets some photos done. And she starts getting booked. Like right out the gate, of all the kids in the class, her and one other woman – They take them on. They get a ton of their headshots done. And she's doing covers. She's doing spreads. She's only five foot four, but she's crushing it. And she's modeling all over town and taking it dead serious. She's like, I know that this is a hobby, but I have to treat it like a source of income. So she's working a full-time nine to five as a typist. As soon as she's done with that, she's running around town, going to all modeling auditions. And then two nights a week from 10 p.m. till 6 a.m., she has like another job. And so two days a week, she just went without sleeping. And she's not young. I mean, she's like 28, 29, 30 at this point. I think she's like 30 at this point. So then from her modeling jobs, she's at the agency and someone comes in and is like, hey, you look just like someone that I know who's making a movie. They need an actor who looks just like you. And she's like, well, I'm not an actor. And she's like, well, just think about it. And so she meets with this guy and he's calling her. Well, not even. She says no a couple times. Yeah. Like it cannot be overstated how many times she's like, I'm not interested. Her agent has to call her over and over again at work. And she's so worried she's going to get fired that she's like, okay, just give me the address. I'll go there after work. So she goes and meets him and he hands her the script and he's like, please just read it. And she's like, I won't. 
But that weekend she does and she's completely captured by it. It's a script about colorism. And she's like, whoa, this is actually pretty good. So she goes back and she agrees to audition. And then she's just perfect at it. She goes, the reading flowed seamlessly. Our voices fit together naturally, weaving and swaying in step as if we'd been rehearsing with one another for weeks. Magic operates as such. He also is like, okay, you're a great actress. I'm going to be your manager and as well as the producer of this movie that I just cast you in. And he says, how old are you? And she says, I'm 30. And he goes, well, you could pass for 20. So just say that. And she does forever. (laughs) It's not until she wins the Kennedy Center honors that she officially says her actual birthday out loud. She says she was never intentionally lying after that initial lie of omission. And people would just always speculate about her age. And then finally, when she's, I think, 93 or 94, she's getting a Kennedy Center honor. And they're like, when were you born? And she, it was like a real bombshell. Everyone was like, oh, my God, we thought you were like creeping up on 80 and you're 94. Six decades would go by before I let the public in on what was frankly never any of their business. <laughs> she has a couple little lines in this book. There's one when she's talking about her childhood and she's in the middle of a sentence. and She goes, how do I remember all these names? No wonder I have a headache all the time. And you're like, how do you remember all of this? So she gets hired for this role as an actor and the movie loses funding midway through. But because this guy wants to be her manager, he's like sending her out and rolls nonstop. She specifically was not letting her mom in on it because she's like, oh, her, my mom is going to hate it if she finds out I'm an actress. But she starts living like this very like cultured life in New York City where this director, Warren Coleman, is taking her to the plays. He's taking her to the theaters. They're like meeting playwrights. They're meeting dancers. They're meeting all of the like cultural elite of New York City. And she's walking home one night with him. And her mom is like, who is that man? And she finally has to come clean that she wants to be an actress. And her mom stared at me for a long moment. Well, you can't stay here and do that, she said. Her statement jarred me so, echoed through me, that I couldn't even look at her. Without a word, I rose from the couch and disappeared into my bedroom. There was no sense in arguing with my mother. What she was forbidding me to do, I was already headlong into doing, with no intention of reversing course. So she just moves out. And when I left my mom's apartment, we did not speak for nearly a year. We did not see each other for almost two. As devastated as I was by her choice, as deeply as her words had sliced through me, I knew she'd made the only decision she felt that she could. I feel bad. And I think that her mom, I mean, her and her mom had a lot to work through throughout their relationship. I know that she felt very, there was a a lot of decision making that really wasn't Cicely's. But at this point, she's 30. You know what I mean? You're 30 years old and you're pursuing a career that your mom doesn't approve of. Like, It's time to move out. And she does. (laughs) She goes, it was her way of loving me, of trying to redirect my steps and shift my affections away from the strivings of this world and back towards the kingdom of God. If you're doing it all because you believe you have to live like a godly life to get into heaven, I'm like, okay, well, those are pretty high stakes. Yeah. (laughs) If you thought being an actress would send your daughter to hell, I also would be like, please don't do that. (laughs) Totally. And so funny because she was like, I tell you, boy, God certainly kept me in his sight line. I couldn't have dreamed up a script more compelling than the one that played out for me during all those years. Who just happens to be approached on the street by a total stranger only to have that man propose modeling, only to have that modeling work become a footbridge to the stage? And I'm like, you're right. It's crazy. (laughs) That's crazy. Claire and I are both big cereal people. I don't know if you know this, but one thing that bonds us is our love for cereal. And one thing that shreds a hole in our relationship is the way we differ in eating cereal. Claire is a big milk and spoon and bowl person. I'm a big handfuls dry person. But either way... Cereal connoisseurs all the same. That's why when we found out about Magic Spoon, we had to have it. We had to try it. And it has become a go-to, a numero uno favorite in both of our houses. I come from a big cereal house. We have one pantry that is full in my house and it's cereal. It's the only food we keep here. And Magic Spoon is now our favorite because I don't have to feel guilty. It's not like a end of the day special treat. It's like a beginning of the day 
off on the right foot cereal. The variety pack of Magic Spoon has four flavors. They are cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. The pack has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and four to five net grams of carbs. There are only 140 calories per serving. It's high protein, has zero grams of sugar. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. My favorite so far after initial tasting is the frosted flavor. What about you? I like peanut butter because it's like a dirty no-no in my home. (laughs) (laughs) Claire eats peanut butter cereal in the office and then has to brush her teeth. Yeah, so it's a real treasure and a treat. Go to magicspoon.com slash worm to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code worm at checkout to save $5 off your first order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's back with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of high-protein cereal at magicspoon.com slash worm and use the code worm to save $5 off. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. So the funding for that movie that she was supposed to make her film and acting debut in fell through. And then she is being sent out on these auditions, but she's like, okay, if I'm not going to be a movie star out the gate, I do want like the fundamentals of acting. I want to understand what acting is. So she's asking her manager to send her to acting class and he keeps on sending her to fairly advanced classes because he's like, well, I already cast you as the star of my movie. I think you're good. So you should be in advanced classes. And she's like, but I have never in my life studied acting. And she wants to learn the fundamentals. She's like obsessed with the fundamentals. And they keep being like, you're too good to be in acting 101. And she's like, yeah, but I get to acting 1001 and I don't know what they're talking about. She goes to one acting class and she's in the room with Marilyn Monroe, fresh off of Some Like It Hot. And she's like, I should not be in Marilyn Monroe's acting class. I should be in acting 101. (laughs) And he keeps saying, well, like you've lived so much that you can just tap into that. You don't need to start at the bottom. And she says, Trauma may give rise to intense feeling, but to refine one's artistry, an actor must be taught to channel the unbridled rawness of that emotion to effectively use it in service of the character's every groan and grimace. Rather than placing me in a course for total beginners, Warren instead sent me to a downtown studio for actors with some experience, albeit limited. That course gave me a migraine. (laughs) So finally, she finds out about this acting teacher named Lloyd Richards, whose business partner is a guy named Paul Mann. She is very set on getting into Lloyd Richards's class. She's here. She hears it's exactly what she's looking for. He has like trained the greats. He was the dean of the Yale School of Drama. He taught Sidney Poitier, Harry Belafonte, Ruby D, Billy D Williams. Like he is the top notch guy to go to. So she goes to the school to have a meeting about getting into class. She has to meet with Paul Mann in order to get into this school and there's like an intro class that Paul teaches before you can get into Lloyd's class. And in this meeting where she talks to Paul, he sexually assaults her. He forces himself on her. She's able to get away, but it was like a very traumatizing experience. And she still shows up the next week for class because she wants to get to Lloyd's class. And she just manages through Paul's class. And then when she gets to Lloyd's class, she's like, this was the teacher I'd been looking for. He was my foundation. Pushing through on the path that Paul tried to derail me from is what helped me find my destiny. And it is heartbreaking just how many people in the industry have been derailed by Louis (laughs) C.K. Life is choices, and as I saw it, I had two. I could have fled from that man's office and never returned. Many, understandably, might have chosen that route. And yet the alternative option, the less obvious of the two, was the one I had settled upon. 
I had arrived at that studio with a singular purpose of training with Lloyd, and though Paul, in a show of flagrant lasciviousness, had attempted to thwart my mission, I would not be deterred. When someone sees you headed in a direction and that person throws a brick into the road, that is the precise moment to forge onward with greater velocity towards your destination. I had a purpose, one that despite all of my wavering, I had witnessed God orchestrating, and I refused to have some man with his hot breath on my neck and his pasty fingers on my nipples impede my plan. I realized I'd been looking for a rock, which Lloyd provided. So yeah, the silver lining of this story is that Lloyd as a teacher was everything she ever looked for. And she says, as an actor, you can spend half of your career finding the right teacher. It is that important to have somebody who understands what you need and the help you're looking for. So at this point, Joan, she's realizing is not thriving at boarding school. She doesn't realize how much Joan needs to just be with her. She thought that setting Joan up with the best life was all that it required, but She ends up bringing Joan home. I know now that Joan pined more for my presence than she did my pocketbook. She needed my provision, yes, but decidedly more of the emotional sort, a cheek-to-cheek coexistence. I do not regret that I chose to earn a living in the manner in which I did or that I arranged for Joan to attend school in a world miles north of mine, but I do mourn that my child, during the years that she hungered to have me close, felt my absence so profoundly. My utmost, well-intentioned as it was, fell short of her needs and desires. So she really acknowledges that she and Joan have a very complicated relationship because she just wasn't able to be there for her. She ends up getting a role in this movie called Carib. Not a starring role, but it's a pretty good role And she's like happier to not have a starring role. She's like, I don't want to start out at the top. I want to like figure this thing out. And she has to travel to shoot this movie. So Joan has to stay with family members. And once again, she feels extremely cast aside. I ache in reflecting upon it now. I ache that though my choices were planted in the soil of my deep love for Joan, she nonetheless felt cast aside. I live with that sorrow. It is why in part I write so scarcely of her. Joan felt as a child that she had to share me with the world. I give her now in adulthood what my heart has always longed to bestow, my undivided focus along with the full measure of her privacy. I think in this day and age in the world of like TikTok moms and blogging and shit, this is such an interesting thing that like in your own fucking autobiography, you wouldn't mention your daughter's name. There's no photos of her. I didn't realize that she had never mentioned her in her career. But I do also wonder if that in itself is painful. I understand wanting to protect someone's privacy, not tell their story. But I also think there's a way with that of it not exploiting your child, but also still having being a mother be part of your identity. And I do not feel like being a mother was part of Cicely's identity. And I don't, I do find that I mean, it obviously wasn't because no one knew that it was part of her identity. Like, okay, here's the thing. So it obviously was not part of her public identity in any way. And the one thing that I want to give her is that by the time she was famous and like being interviewed, by the time she had a public identity, Joan was in her twenties. And so I think that like the identity as a mother is like largely when your kid is I don't know. Mm, I don't don't know. You think you would call your mom right now and if somebody said, tell me about your life, she would forget that she had you? No. But first of all, she didn't ever want to be a mother. And I know that she is a mom, but I don't – I think it just isn't part of her her identity. And I know that that might – I guess that probably does hurt. I'm sure that hurts. I can't imagine being the child of someone who doesn't publicly acknowledge you. I guess like the question of who is she doing it for and like in this passage she says specifically, I don't don't talk about her out of respect. I think that that's something that she's chosen now since she's never talked about her. But I can't imagine that 20-year-old Joan felt good feeling neglected. I think she felt very neglected. And but I that's think- the thing is, I guess what I'm saying is I wonder how not a part of her life and how not acknowledged she was. Because I think that if you just don't know she has a daughter and you don't know to look for her, first of all, she's claiming 10 years younger and she looks 10 years younger. So if you see 
a woman that you think is 20 walking around with a woman who looks 18. I don't know that you would assume mother-daughter. So maybe Joan is like coming with her to things. You know what I mean? Like I don't know that we know like how anonymous she was. Maybe she was there just not as daughter. That's weird. It's weird to be somewhere and like specifically not to be someone's daughter. I will also say later in this book when she marries Miles Davis, she didn't tell her own daughter she was planning that wedding. Yeah, that was fucked up. I do feel like right or wrong, she had this second chance at living a real life in her 20s, one that she got to determine for herself and having an adult daughter. A second 20s. Yeah, having a daughter doesn't really fit into that life. And I think it was easy for her to pretend that that child didn't exist. And like she kind of took that out. And I'm not saying like she yeah. would if you had cornered her in a deli and said, did you ever give birth to this child and hold up a photo of her daughter? I don't think she would be like, no, I don't know her. But yeah, there are ways you can acknowledge I've had a child in your 60 years of public. Yeah. And then there's especially not public when she when you get married at a small intimate Thanksgiving ceremony. Yeah. You could easily invite your daughter. No, that's true. Like, where was her daughter on Thanksgiving? And I think for her daughter to be like, okay, so I had a dad who would have been a part of my life and you told him no. And then you took full custody of me and then you sent me to boarding school. And then it seems like when she came back as a teenager, my sense is that it was a real, oh, well, you can watch yourself now and like you can hang out with me if you can hang. I'm starting this new career. It's very exciting. I'm telling everyone I'm 20. I'm going to plays every night. I'm meeting all these amazing, cool creatives. And she says like, oh, she would come to plays with me and stuff. But there's a difference in hanging out and going out with your mom and being mothered. Yeah. And it kind of sounds like when Joan was 10, she decided, I can't keep being your mother, but I'll still love you and I care about you. Yeah. And I'll provide for you. But a lot of being a mother is like the daily bullshit. And she didn't do it. I do think the public persona of not being a mother is an extension of that choice to like have a public persona where you are not known as a mother and I'm sure that did help her career and I understand she was in a really shitty situation where she didn't want that kid but I will say if I was that kid I could see that being deeply hurtful so a woman named Vinette Carroll is directing a play and this ends up being just like a star-studded experience the play is called Dark of the Moon and she's very proud of this project invites her mom to come to opening night And so I guess it's the first time her mom has ever seen her act. She puts her mom in the 10th row so that hopefully she can't make eye contact with her. But of course, her mom is actively engaging with the play the entire time. And she's able to channel her character. But at the end of it, her mom sees her out front and says, I always knew ever since she was a little girl that she was going to be an actress. And this is just one of those moments where she's like, well, then why did you kick me out of the house? (laughs) So then she gets into her lifelong love affair with Miles Davis. She's living on the Upper West Side, and there's, like, a lot of black creatives up there who have this super cool – They're vibing. Yeah, they just have their world where they're all friends, and they're hanging out, and they're living in brownstones. And doing cool plays and music and chilling. So Miles Davis has a wife, and he's part of the scene, and so they know each other. One day she's walking down the street. She sees him first and pretends like she doesn't. And he goes, hey, you. He said, I kept right on walking. I am not hey or you. I thought, Miss Tyson, he said, how are you? (laughs) I smiled and turned around, but only part way. I'm fine, I said. So he tries to hit on her and she's like, don't you have a wife? And he's like, we're separated. And she just goes, well, I have never heard that. So have a good day. I then walked off. He starts pursuing her quite actively. He's calling her. He's having people call her. He's trying to get her to come over for lunch. And eventually she starts hanging out. First of all, that man loved to eat. And second, he did not like to be alone. That sounds like every celebrity. (laughs) Every time I'd come by, the house bustled with folks coming in and out. The smell of oxtails mixing with the sound of laughter. When the world speaks of Miles, the legend, they have no idea who the man really was. The Miles I knew was sensitive and ailing, bruised by the hurts that life meets out. 
So eventually their relationship becomes romantic and it was the passion that she had always dreamt of. She says she'd had a couple other relationships throughout her life between her marriage to Kenneth and now this relationship with Miles, but this was passion. Also, her friend Vinette, the director, did a giant variety show every year for the Talent 59 Festival. She did a scene from the Dark of the Moon, and everybody was like, oh, she's the one. Everybody in the theater world, it seemed, was there to see us. And because of the exposure, my phone started ringing. Can we get Cicely Tyson to come to this audition, they'd ask Warren. Things were happening, boy, and I could feel the shift in the air, the electricity. So this is a big turning point in her life. She ends up in a play called The Blacks, a critically acclaimed play written by a French dramatist how do you say this? Jean Genet. Genet. Jean Genet, I'd say. Okay. I didn't know if that was John in French. Yeah, I feel like you could be like Jean Genet. That's what I would have thought. That's okay, what I expected from you, a preschool French teacher. <laughs> Jean Genet. I'm not one to feel as if I've arrived for even at age 96, I'm still arriving. But being cast in that show was the closest I've come to experiencing that delight. This play was... A smash success. It was the longest running off-Broadway non-musical of the 1960s, which feels like a lot of caveats, but I do think it was a, it's a very big deal. I think it's a big thing. It was a stacked cast. James Earl Jones, Roscoe Lee Brown, Lou Gossett Jr., Billy D. Williams, Charles Gordon, Maya Angelou. I mean, that's an insane cast. And they just had the most fun in the world. They gossiped. They drank. They ate. They partied. They vacationed together. They were like a tight little crowd. Just like every night after the play, they would all just like go out and party. And she's like, and if you didn't go to that party, Everyone was talking shit about you at the party. <laughs> yeah, she says that everybody famous came from Duke Ellington to James Baldwin, the Harlem Writers Guild, Rosa Guy, Audre Lord. They all just like were always going to dinner parties and partying. One thing about Cicely Tyson is if someone is famous, she's met them. Yeah. And they love her. <laughs> <laughs> because this play went on for so long, people would come in and out in the cast and they would like leave and then come back later. One of the people who was there at one point was Roxy Roker, who went on to be... Who went on to be Lenny Kravitz's mom. Everybody wanted to date her at this point. She was like the hot girl in town. I have to share this story about this DJ she dated for a while. It was a man I met at the jazz club. That went on for only a few months. After he'd worried me half to death with too much talking, I dumped him by calling into a radio station and dedicating the Billy Holiday song to him, You Ain't Gonna Bother Me No More. That is a very funny way to dump a DJ. I want to start <laughs> doing that. I feel like you have to like dump each man specific to his profession and passion. I feel like you got to date a landscape artist and then like plant flowers in a it's over pattern. Ooh, I want to date a pilot and then hire a skywriter. That's funny. <laughs> That's Cicely Tyson. James Earl Jones was married at one point and tried to hit on her and she wouldn't take his calls. So he tried to disguise his voice to call her and ask her out, which is like the funniest thing I've ever heard because he has one of the most famous voices of all time. And then on top of that, what was going to happen if she went on the date? Oh my God. <laughs> at this time, she also will go to a bookstore, see a book that speaks to her, buy it based on the cover and then be like, I'm going to play this part. And in two years, she's always like playing that part. Yeah. So one of the parts she loved was from this book, Brown Girl, Brown Stones. They make it into a movie and it's the story of a 16-year-old girl and her nine-year-old sister. At this point, she is near 40 and she goes in and they're like, yeah, you'd be great for the 16-year-old sister. And she's like, no, I'm going to play the nine-year-old. And then they let her. I need to watch this movie and figure out how convincing it is that she is nine. I believe at 30 she could look 20. I do not know that at 40 she could look nine. I wonder if it's like an avant-garde situation. It's kind of suspend your disbelief. Yeah. It's like how Serena Vanderwoodson's in high school. <laughs> she was 58 playing no. Seven. It's like how Paxton is in <laughs> Paxton Never Hall, Have I Yoshida. Ever. Get away from those high school girls. You're 92 years old. 
So then she talks about how she started in a natural hair craze when she, it was 1962 and she was playing a role for Between Yesterday and Today. And it was a woman who was very proud of her African heritage. And she was like, okay, what kind of hair would this woman have? And she's like, there's no way she's wearing her hair straightened. She cuts it down into a very short afro and no one can believe it. And the director comes over and says, this is what I wanted you to do, but I thought you'd say no. And she says that a lot of the things in her life that she's done come from the characters. My character is who gave me the audacity. Anytime my hair changed over the course of my career, it has nothing to do with me personally. It has always been about being authentically in the character, about staying as true to her essence and appearance as I can. That has always been my sole intention. And yet when that episode aired, all anyone could talk about was this actress. Her mom even said, what do you mean she cut off her hair? She would never be so damn foolish. For a while, she wouldn't even let me come to her apartment. You're not going to embarrass me in front of my neighbors, she said. God help that woman. She goes, she was something else, that Frederica. Never one to clamp her tongue when it came to her children's choices. A black woman's hairstyle in this country has often been linked to her survival. In the color hierarchy set up by slave owners, the closer you were to looking white, fair skin, loose curls, rather than tightly coiled ones the higher your status in their eyes. Over centuries, we were taught to disregard ourselves, a habit we're still unlearning. And then she says, at the end of the day, the hair doesn't even matter. Whether you relax it or coil it, weave it or dread it, cover it with a wig or cut it plum off, the choice is yours. Good hair is your hair, however you decide to wear it. What matters is not the hair in your heads, but what flows from your hearts. She gets a role on a soap opera. She's actually the first black character to ever appear on a soap opera. And it's like one of those things where, and then finally her mom and sister were like, okay, actually this is pretty cool. <laughs> and they're always like yelling at her like she's her character. They're like, why did you do that? And then even Miles Davis is like, you have no business to be giving all that advice to those women. And she's like, the character? <laughs> There's always that one show that secretly everybody's obsessed with. She meets Bill Cosby because she plays on his show. They had a kissing scene and they had to keep redoing it because there was a weird background noise and it turns out it was just his heart thumping every time they kissed and she says in all our years of working together he never laid a finger on me offset but for that scene I did get his ticker going and I will say I don't love that little shove under the rug of horrible sex offenders more than a shove under the rug almost like a tongue-in-cheek like he never assaulted me but I did like I don't know because she stands up and against and names so many men who assaulted her or came onto her or were inappropriate with her and she like condemns them to hell and names names and goes they're still celebrated but let me tell you he is a monster and I do think she's done so much to stand up for so many people and it is kind of like can you do everything no it's one of those like one little line of he was always kind to me and it breaks my heart to find out what he was really like yeah would have done the trick so she starts really hearing voices she and Miles Davis are together and her ESP is through the roof. And she one day gets a vision of Miles Davis driving in a convertible down 7th Avenue with a woman with like long flowing curls. And she calls him and goes, I heard you got your new car. And he knows. The thing about her is she's always very in tune with when he is having an affair or cheating on her. He looks different. He smells different. There's something in his face. And he cannot live with the guilt. And she never really calls him out on it directly. But she'll say something like, I know where you were. Or, oh, how was dinner? And he knows he's been caught. And I think because she was raised in such a culture of like never discussing anything, she never like says it head on. She just lives in it. Because of her intuition, I think that she is like, okay, he was trying to keep it a secret, but I got one over on him. Like I'm just extremely intuitive. And it's never until he starts really parading someone in her face that she will be like, okay, that's enough. She has a lot that she can silently live through. She also says to her, it's not the transgression, it's the deceit. It's one thing to make a mistake. She goes, I understand why you lie when you're a kid because you don't want to get in trouble. But if you're an adult and you get caught, you need to fess up and say, I'm sorry. It's when you refuse to acknowledge what everybody knows. 
that is the betrayal. If he wanted to traipse around town with some white one, so be it. I had no right to stop him, but I also did not need to stay around and watch him do his dirt. So he's also using drugs very heavily at this time. And she says he never once used in front of her and she never saw evidence of his use. But she did see the evidence in his eyeballs. She said he had a different look in his eyes. He had a different way that he moved. She would never say anything. And he always wanted to get a reaction out of her. She would just leave. She always kept her own apartment and she would just go there. And then over the days, he would send her gift after gift after gift. And she was like, I never wanted the diamonds or the furs. And I would just let them hang in my closet and I would never use them. But slowly he would apologize and promise to do better. And that's what won her over. So they're on tour. Miles is doing some shows and Martin Luther King is assassinated. And I think that one of the really important things about this book is the way that like major moments in history cannot be untangled from her life. It's not like when a white memoirist is like, and then 9-11 happened. And I thought to myself, what is mortality? You know what I mean? It is. I should marry Nick Lachey. There's a lot of black history in this book. And a lot of it is very deeply tied to the way her day-to-day functions. And it is one of those things that like white people do have a privilege in this country to like kind of participate or not participate as much as they want. And that is not true of black people. And it really informs her decision to take certain roles. It really informs her mission, the way she sets up to portray black women in Hollywood because she understands the position she has and the way that no action is just a small action. She has a stage that most people don't have and she takes it very seriously around this time also that white woman that he was dating showed up at their house and that's when she was like all right well you can fuck off then she leaves they get married almost immediately yeah he marries the other woman she goes takes a role out in Toronto she gets a new agent she ends up moving to LA she just like gets out of this mess she gets a new agent who lives in LA and he's like you should come out here for some auditions and she's staying at his house he's like you should stay here for maybe a little while and she goes well where will I go and he's like well here and she ends up living with her agent on and off for nine years she goes out for a role called guess who's coming to lunch and she says guess who's coming to lunch and staying for the decade me <laughs> also when her agent haber brings her home he had it run it by his wife first and she's like the nerve of that man and then it turns out everybody in town thought they were having an affair or a menage a trois and the wife thought they were having an affair too and finally cicely's like i would never have sex with your disgusting white husband <laughs> And the woman's like, oh, I thought you were. And she's like, you thought I was going to have an affair with your husband and then live in your house with your children? And the woman's like, I don't know. <laughs> and you're like, damn, cheating? People just accept it. Yeah, I was like, okay, and you were going to live in a house with your husband and his mistress? Yeesh. That's worse. This also isn't a huge part of the story, but I think it's a really important thing to her. Her friend Arthur Peters and their friend Brock Mitchell decide to start a – like a performing arts and dance school up in Harlem. I think it's mostly just dance. Mm -hmm. And it is just a very big deal in creating opportunity for black kids to study dance. Yeah, it's a professional ballet theater. It's called the Dance Theater of Harlem. Arthur is a renowned, he was the first ever black principal dancer in the American Ballet Company or Academy or I actually, I don't know anything about ballet, but you guys, the big one. <laughs> and he was in it. And so he founds this company and he teaches. And I mean, every time they do a performance, it's these kids and they have like the most famous actors in the audience and they take them everywhere. They build something really beautiful and she's really proud of it. They believed, as Arthur and I did, in the unique transformative power of the arts, a well-told story in whichever artistic medium it's delivered can touch corners of the soul otherwise unreachable. So in 1971, 
she gets the role for Sounder and she says it begins with a prediction. She says, I'm going out to Hollywood to do my first big movie. And if you do, Arthur says, you're going to be nominated for an Oscar. And if I am, I told him, you will be my escort. And so, of course, she does this movie and she is, in fact, ultimately nominated for an Oscar. This movie is very important to her. So she is very passionate against the era of black exploitation films where she's like they were finally putting black people in movies but it was like for the white gaze essentially that it was like very violent over the top stereotypical movies (laughs) where the black characters they were portraying did not have a lot of depth did not have a lot of nuance and she felt like at the end of the day they were not doing anything to move black people forward in the world and in such an environment director marty ritt made the brave choice to feature a loving black family in a plot that neither satisfied the thirst for black rebel characters nor reinforce the stereotypes of us as heathenish villains. It was bold. It raised eyebrows and doubts. And even Paul Winfield denied the principal actors wondered if anyone would show up to see the film. First things first, though. The story of Sounder may have been stolen from a black man. William H. Armstrong is said to have penned the 1969 children's book upon which the film is based and then won the Newbery Medal for. But while preparing for the film, a young black author I met insisted he'd written the story during the years he worked for Armstrong. He even gave me a signed copy of the original draft, and it breaks my heart that I no longer have it and cannot track down the man's name. I loaned this draft to Lon Elder and never got it back. Lon. So she also does such a good job in this movie. She was initially the second lead, and then they make her a headliner of the film. It happened not because I'd orchestrated it, but because Heaven had. So the film comes out, and her and her co-star, Paul Winfield, are like walking around town to see what the reception's like, and not one person is standing in line to buy a ticket for this film. And she's like, okay, well, it's a flop. And then it made $17 million. Yeah, she says, I went home and cried privately over the disappointment, as I'm sure Paul did, but those tears dried up soon after when the reviews came in. So what happened is basically every single person was like, oh, this is the most incredible film I've ever seen. The reviews were phenomenal. Because the reviews were so good, the executives at 20th Century Fox put $1 million into a media blitzkrieg which like promoted all of the positive reviews, which turned it into this like sleeper success. Ooh. So that just goes to show you what happens when you promote a movie. And she actually says, when film companies put their marketing machines behind a movie featuring a black cast, such as Black Panther, these films can and do often perform well. Not everything is going to succeed, but she's like, you have to give these films a chance to prove that like the idea that there's black movies for black audiences. Like, no, white movies can be seen by everybody. Black movies can be seen by everybody. But you have to let people know the movies exist. It's as simple as marketing it the same way you'd market anything. So the day she finds out she's nominated for an Oscar, she's actually on set for a different film. And everyone starts like laughing. And she's like, why are you laughing? She's like, I'm trying to work. Nobody fucking talk to me. She takes her job very seriously. She shows up and she does a role. And the director actually comes in and be like, can I tell you something? And she's like, is it about this scene? If not, then no, because I'm in character. And I don't have time for small talk. Later that day, she finds out she is nominated for an Oscar. And so she calls Arthur. And she's like, we're going to LA, baby. And then she calls her mom. Mom, and she goes, well, and her mom says, well, what? You better tell me something. I said, the line went silent. I am so proud of you, sister. She finally said, I could feel tears brimming and I let them fall, unable to speak because I was so overcome by what I longed to hear. If I had not heard those words from my mother, none of this would have made any difference. If she had not been able to participate in the acclaim I was receiving, all of it would have felt empty to me. After a childhood during which my mother's opinion drowned out all others, it gave me the last say. So she knew she wasn't going to win the Oscar because she was up against Liza Minnelli and she knew like the narrative driving Liza would be stronger than her own just in terms of Nepo baby shit. And so she was fine with it. She was like, all I ever wanted from the first time I saw the Oscars was to sit front row and I did that. She won her dreams. 
She also dated Paul, her co-star, briefly, and she says, our onset relationship eventually grew into a personal one. Our affinity for one another is perhaps one reason Paul gave me his spot as Sounders headliner. The other reason was that I'd earned it. (laughs) Yeah. She also addresses a supposed feud she has with Diana Ross, and she says, not to me. I don't think there was a feud, and so I guess there wasn't. God, around this time, though, so she is being flown all over the world and Europe to promote this movie, and this is huge for her. She's like, I cannot believe the little girl who shared a bed with her siblings in the living room is now in these, like, giant hotel rooms with my face on posters. And one day she's back in New York City, and Miles comes over, and he is pretty high and fucked up, and he says, Cicely, you see all those apartments? I stared at him and did not answer. Every person in those buildings knows who you are. He slurred. He began to cry. Tell them I'm your boyfriend, he went on. I'll take you any place you want to go. Just tell them I'm with you. I stood there dazed, sat into my core at the state he was in. It was so pitiful. Here was this man, among the most gifted musicians who ever trod this earth, desperately seeking the validation I had attained on my own. He had no idea what he meant to the world because he meant so little to himself. Her next film is the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, which is an incredible feat. It tells the story of this 110-year-old woman, and she tells stories from all parts of her life. And she is about 49 at this point, and she's like, listen, I know I can play a kid. I guess she can look eight if she needs to. And she's like, I know I can play the 20s and 30s, but she's like, I don't know how to play roles beyond the age that I've experienced. And so she goes and she interviews all these older women. She inhabits this character to a level that it's like – divine she gets dental work done she gets contacts put in and then she's like but how am I gonna handle the posture and then her body just like collapses in on itself for five weeks and she's like oh that was nice I like that my body did that (laughs) no she goes I went in the bathroom and there was a hump I had developed an actual hump and they had made a prosthetic for her so that she could have a prosthetic hump and she's like no need my body has aged 50 years in one night (laughs) and then as soon as the film's over her hump goes away So she does this huge role, and this is interesting about her acting experience. She goes, I never start with memorizing lines. In fact, the dialogue for me is usually the last to come. I begin where Ernest had by sitting and listening to the stories of the elders. Acting for me has always been an organic process that involves absorbing my character's reality, allowing her to saturate the cells and fires of my being. So she says when she gets a script, she reads it like 30 times. She just keeps reading it and reading it and reading it until she's like so within the pages that she understands the character fully. And then she goes in and starts like doing the memorization. So this movie does incredible. 50 million people tune in, nearly a quarter of the nation. I was stunned by how swiftly the acclaim poured in, followed by waves of nominations, nine Emmy nods, all of which were awarded for my title role. I won not just one Emmy, but a pair of them. She wins Actress of the Year, which is a specially created Emmy that up to then had never been given, nor has it been awarded since. So they just created, they were like, you won Best Actress and also Best Best, best Actress, <laughs> Better Actress. Best of the best. <laughs> you were great in this and you were great in general. <laughs> so some of these roles, these ones that we're really focusing on, she calls them like the roles. For her, there's like some stuff that she does and it's cool, but there are some where she's like, most people do not have a great role in their entire career. Most black women don't get one. If they get one, they get one. She's had like four. So these come back to back and nobody really knows what she's going to do next because now she can't take roles that are below her. And her agent even says, I don't know what she'll do. She She may have acted herself clean out of the business. Like in terms of big roles, she says, that's it. There'll never be another Jane. And she says this happens to black women in the industry that there are so few roles that are like dignified and worthy of them. There are so many stereotypes and so many, oh, you can play the maid or you can play the prostitute. There's just not as many roles as we need to become a Meryl Streep because we don't have that many options. And then we don't get paid for the work that we do do. 
And this is a problem in the industry that we have heard from all of the black actresses that we've read. You can only do so much when you don't have the source material. And she's like, I don't know what I'll do after Jane Pittman because I'm not going to do something that's beneath me. There were stretches where I did not have enough work or enough money and often both. Speaking is how I remained solvent for a full month every year throughout the 70s. I toured on college campuses talking to young people about the roles I'd played, hoping to wield my microphone as a force for good. It is so crazy that this woman who they invented an Emmy for had to do speaking engagements to pay rent. Yeah. One of the roles she does get that she loves so much, though, is she gets to play Coretta Scott King. And in order to prepare for it, she gets to go meet with Coretta Scott King in her home. She spends a lot of time with her just researching and following her. She talks a lot about portraying someone who's still alive. And she says, you don't want to mimic them. You want to learn them. So then her mother passes away. She and her mom both have somewhat confusing dreams. And when they're talking to each other, she has the realization that the woman in her dreams was her mother. At 77, the time had drawn near for my mother to at long last reunite with her mom. And then at this point, she goes, anyway, my dad had already died like 10 years ago, which I find to be odd narratively. She had not mentioned it. And she does mention a pretty traumatic situation where she had been preparing for an audition and her dad was on his deathbed and the family gathered around and they said, don't tell Cicely the state he's in. She needs to prepare. So she was not with her father when he passed and her family actively kept the information from her. They did not want to pull focus away from my preparation. And I'll tell you, boy, there are some things you can never quite pardon others for. This for me is one such occurrence that my family would think it was more important to me to prep for an audition than to be at my father's bedside. It still puzzles and deeply pains me. So she obviously has a a lasting relationship with her family. Later, she talks about events that happened in her 80s and 90s that her nephews attend. But she talks about how her family never viewed her differently after she became famous. And based on this, that seems to not be the case. Losing my father and mother felt to me like walking through the world without arms. Your skin is freshly bruised and exposed. The pain is raw. Through death, you realize that the word heartache is not metaphorical but literal. Every part of you throbs and burns. After the rice and peas and plantains have been brought over by caring neighbors, and once the mourners have gone, you are left with only the silence, the knowing, the realization that you are on your own. As much as I adored my father and ached after his passing, I felt the loss of my mother most profoundly. Once our family split apart while I was nine, my mother became the ever-present force of my childhood, the one who wrote most prolifically upon the canvas of who I am. But once Miles stumbled back into my world, I learned just how much of a father wound I was still nursing. Then does a role in Russia with Jane Fonda, Ava Gardner, and... Liz Lemon. Nope. <laughs> Who? Taylor. Liz Taylor. I get Liz Taylor and Liza Minnelli mixed up because they're anyway. So this movie was a disaster, and she did become friends with Jane Fonda, who she loves. But she says the movie was a mess, and they like went way over schedule, and so she just left. Yeah, and she goes back to the movie producer's place in Beverly Hills, and he calls up the director of the movie in Russia and goes, "Do you know or Sicily is?" And he's like, yeah, she's in her dressing room. And he's like, no, she's with me in L.A. <laughs> like she left and didn't even tell the crew. But they had gone past her contract. And she says, around the business, I've sometimes been called difficult. The truth is that I insist upon respect. I don't take any tea for the fever child. Even now at age 96, I teach folks not to mess with me. Good. Good. As a woman, it is extremely difficult to enforce a contract that has been signed by both parties. People think you're so mean. I'm in awe of her boundaries and her self-respect and the way she demands the respect from people that she's owed. Yes, she deserves it. So it's 1975. She's single. She's at the peak of her career and who should come crawling back to her life but Miles Davis. He has gone missing and his kids call her and everybody's kind of freaked out. They're like, we don't know what to do. Nobody's seen him for weeks. And it turns out he has OD'd and he's like in a sewer. Yeah, so he – 
is found and kind of brought back to society by his family, but she and him don't have any contact during this time. And she's like, I wanted him alive as like as a person who cares about people. And as a person who loved him. Then she gets roots. She plays Binta, the mother of Kunta Kinte. And that is another like insane hit. 130 million Americans I mean, a cultural. Yeah, it like rocks America to its core and starts conversations that had not been had. I think she said 85% of households that had a TV watched it. As I see it, Roots resonated because it touched a nerve that runs far deeper than race, family identity. The human's desire to know where we've come from and who our foreparents are is a universal longing that transcends ethnicity. When you know your history, you know your value. In 1978, while still basking the Roots afterglow, I played the formidable abolitionist and Underground Railroad conductor Harriet Tubman. So her career is, I mean, I guess this is spread out over decades, but she's she makes a real point of playing women and characters that she is proud of and wants to portray. And it's incredible the way that she's able to make that happen when it's... When those roles are so few and far between. Yeah. Said, I could not afford the luxury of simply being an actress. I felt an enormous responsibility to use the forum as a force for good, as a place from which to display the full spectrum of our humanity. My art had to both mirror the times and propel them forward. I was determined to do all I could to alter the narrative about black people, to change the way black women in particular were perceived by reflecting our dignity. Shortly after that, here to disturb the peace. Miles was sober when he rang me. I don't know to what degree he was still using cocaine then, if at all, but the damage he had inflicted on his body was clear. He comes up to her and he's basically like, I'm tired of how I'm living, sis. I don't want to do this no more. Please come back to me. I need you. He had a strong need to be cared for, and that need intersected with my desire to provide care. That's why when Miles called me that day pleading for help, I finally whispered yes. So the first thing she does is take him to a Chinese herbalist. Who's like, you've got three weeks to live. And she's like, we have to save this man. He is too important. So he's like, fine. If he does exactly what I say, maybe you can bring him back from the brink. And they mix up a bunch of herbs and she keeps him on a strict diet. And he slowly but surely does get better. And after a year of like kind of nursing him back to health and taking care of him, he just keeps saying, please marry me. Please marry me. And finally, she's like, all right, we can do this thing. And they get married in a small ceremony on Thanksgiving Day at Bill Cosby's house. Sister's not invited. Her daughter's not invited. Very few people knew Miles and I were to marry. Even my family did not know. I didn't tell them because I didn't want to hear folks' mouths. I didn't want anyone to distract me from what I was intent on doing. I shed tears at both my weddings, the first time at age 18 because I'd been forced to marry. Nearly four decades later, I cried happy tears as I willingly spoke my vows. So then they get married and she has three big projects on her hands that are a big deal in her life. The first one is a film with Richard Pryor called Bustin' Loose, which is like a huge box office hit. The second one is about the life of a trailblazing educator, Marva Collins, which is a big deal because Marva was still alive and on set watching Sicily get it right or wrong. And she said that made it very hard. But she's like, you know, she was important and she did really good work. And if she wants to be portrayed correctly, that's her right. So she doesn't like complain about it. It just pushes her to the limit. The last, a Broadway show with Liz Taylor ended in a lawsuit. And this lawsuit is basically because she wanted to take one night off, the only night in her life she's ever asked for off from a she job. She wanted to go to a Miles Davis tribute and they were like, no. So she just didn't show up and they fired her. But part of the reason they fired her is the whole play was bombing anyway. And they basically fired her and they were like, we're not paying you the rest of your contract. And she's like, they just did it because they needed the money. Yeah. So she took her ass to the lawsuit. So she sues her to get the rest of the money and ends up getting like $500,000, I think. Yeah, and years later, she runs into her at a restaurant by accident She goes to say hi to James Earl Jones, and it turns out he's eating with Liz Taylor. And Liz Taylor goes, you know, Cicely sued me once. (laughs) And she goes, how much money did you get, Cicely? And Cicely goes, half a million, and walks away. (laughs) I guess I'm like, you should have just paid her, dude. I don't know. I'm not on Liz Taylor's side. The problem is 
their relationship, it was good for a couple years. And then, of course, he starts turning to drugs again. He starts cheating again. And he has this insane temper. He has that the classic trope of cheaters assume everybody's cheating. The He's man was crazy jealous. Envious to the bone. And Cicely's like, anyone who knows me knows I would have never stepped out on anybody. Marlon Brando tries to get with Cicely and she turns him down hard, but... Someone sends a photo of the two of them together to her house and she opens it and he walks in when she's opening it and is like, why does that photo exist? And he freaks out. He goes like berserk and she runs away. Luckily, she had always kept her own place. A woman should always have a place of her own, some independence, and I'd held on to mine in part to keep a canyon between me and Miles's rants. He predictably followed me soon after, raising Cain the whole way there. I could hear him through my windows, pleading with me to let him in, cursing Marlon to hell. I just lay on the bed and cried until he left my stoop, which he eventually did after wearing himself out. It is sad to me that at 94 years old, she looks back and goes, like, what I learned from relationships is you should always have a place to hide. Yeah. That's like a tough outlook on love. She says, relationships are knitted together by need. When two people connect, the purpose each is serving in the other's life is what holds the union in place, keeps the ragged edges of the hemline sewn. My need to nurse Miles back to health fit perfectly with his need to be nurtured. And for the first few years of our reunion, the dynamic bound us tightly. But as Miles outgrew the desire for their caretaker, and as I became less tolerant of what ailed him, our marriage began unraveling. As irrefutable proof of his affairs mounted, I pulled away physically, and on occasions when we were intimate, I insisted on using protection. We both knew why. It's astonishing even to me that I did not walk away from Miles at this juncture. In one sense, I pitied him even more than I loved him. How can you be angry at a man so broken, so intent on destroying himself? In another sense, I scorned him, resented that he was doing to me exactly what my own father had done to my mom, and he was brazenly betraying our vows. But she also says, when Miles and I had reconnected after years apart, I knew exactly who this man was. He demonstrated that during our first time together, and it stood to reason that his behaviors would continue as they did, especially once he'd gotten off his crutches and back on his trumpet. Essentially replaying history with her mom and dad, the housekeeper alerts her to the fact that Miles is having an affair with someone who lives in the building. So, oh my God, worse than that. It's not just any building. She buys a house in Malibu and then she buys an apartment on the Upper East Side right on Park Ave. And she doesn't even tell Miles about it because he's like, why would anybody want to live on the East Side? Like, it's all white people who would want to live there. And so she's like, yeah, totally. And like quietly buys an apartment without him knowing. Two years later, he figures it out. And they start spending a lot of time there. And then he has this affair with a woman who lives on a different floor. In her building. The housekeeper is like, listen, I just don't think it's right that he's having sex with a different woman in your bed. Yes. And Cicely's like, I have to agree. So she arranges to kind of find out. She finds out that they're meeting in front of the apartment every day at 10 a.m. after Cicely goes to work. And then they'll take a walk around and then they'll come back and they'll have sex in her apartment. So she decides to get home at 10 a.m., She meets Miles out front and he's like, well, what are you doing here? And she's like, I'm home early. Let's take a walk. So they go for a walk. They come home. The woman is standing in front of the apartment waiting for Miles to meet her. And she she and Miles glanced at one another, clearly not wanting me to recognize the exclamation points in their eyes as they exchanged looks. And, you know, she lets Miles know that she knows they have a big fight. He claims that the woman is an artist and she's just helping him with an art project. They end up having an altercation in the lobby. So one day Cicely is coming home. This woman is in the lobby and smiles at Cicely. And Cicely goes, don't smile at me. And she goes, people smile. And Cicely's like, that was the bullshit. You can't say that to me. (laughs) Yeah. So she like hits her. Doorman like brings Cicely back up to her apartment. The husband comes up and is like, excuse me, I heard you had a fight with my wife. And she goes, tell your wife to stay out of my apartment. And he's like... I think they're just working on an art project. And she goes, you're an idiot. Tell your wife to stay out of my apartment. (laughs) Anyway, 
Human behavior is a mystery, one riddled with contradiction. I don't excuse Miles's conduct any more than I dismiss my willingness, consciously or unknowingly, to indulge it. We mortals breathe incongruity. That I chose to stay with Miles is still in many ways confounding to me, and yet I've come to realize that Miles's behavior felt sorely familiar, a song blaring and dissonant that I'd learned in my early years. So she stays with him for a little bit longer. And yeah. then finally, it's just like one too many. She says, Miles and I had spoken our promises in 1981, and by 1985, I knew our marriage was over. And I think they're together a few years after that before they are officially divorced. Yeah. I think he says something to her that's a little bit rude, and she goes, that's it, I'm out. And she just packs up her stuff and leaves for a year and he begs her to meet him at a bar and he shows up and he goes, can you just be my wife and we don't have to have sex? And in that moment, she knows that all the rumors she had been hearing that he had contracted HIV must be true because she's like, why else wouldn't he want to have sex? He must be trying to protect me. There also had been long-term rumors of him having an affair with his male hairdresser. And at that moment, she was just like, I can't anymore. And she walked out of his life and never spoke to him again. And apparently before that meetup, he'd been working on a memoir where he spoke glowingly of her the way she brought him back from the brink of death. And after that meetup, when she said, I, we can't ever do this, apparently he threw out all of the work that had been done and rewrote her as just an absolute monster. She never read the book, but that's the rumors. Apparently on his deathbed, he said, tell Cicely I'm sorry. So the day that he passes away, she falls down in a crosswalk and like just kind of loses consciousness for a second and pops back up and leaves. And she's like, he was trying to take me with him. <laughs> what a dick. That's so mean. Get your ghost out of here. The mid-90s for me is a misty watercolored blur of films that could put me fast asleep right now, save for my star turn, the 1994 CBS miniseries, The Oldest Living Confederate Widow Tells All. So then she just goes through and he's like, she's like, here's a bunch of stuff that I was in. She also talks about just like the grit and her life. I just want to say this one line that we skipped. We'll ask about her age. It's all about the greens, my dear. Thrice daily blended if you prefer, blah, blah, blah. That along with my bar pull-ups. She has a pull-up bar in her apartment and she does three sets of 20 pull-ups every morning. What the fuck? I'm sorry. I went to yoga class today and did one proper chaturanga and was deeply proud of myself. I was like, that's on its way to being a push-up. <laughs> she has this diet that she shares at the end. And first of all, she's like, I have a cup of celery juice every morning. And then she goes, and I stay hydrated with four cups of water. And I'm like, four cups of water? <laughs> and she's like, listen, a lot of people die from being dehydrated. I know some people who in the middle of the night stand up, they're so dehydrated, they just die. <laughs> She said it happened to two people she knows. And then she has oatmeal that she makes with almond milk. And then she eats basically just raw vegetables. No carrots. It's too sugary. Yeah. She has. Oh, my God. <laughs> we have to fast forward to the end when she's talking about this. She likes to freeze lychee nuts. As terrific as they are, I buy them only once in a while. I recently bit into an especially sweet one. And then I stuck it right back in the freezer. Not today, Suze. I said to myself. <laughs> Full of glucose. I try never to eat late and certainly after not, not after 9 p.m. Anyway, but in terms of Miles's death, she says, death is a love note to the living, to regard every day, every breath as sacred. What is your life? The scriptures ask us. So now we're in the third section. And this at this point, she has lived many a decade and she's just reaping what she sowed, which is a lot of awards. Yeah. First up is the school in East Orange is like obsessed with getting her approval so that they can name the school after her and she's like I don't want you I don't know you I have nothing to do with you leave me alone she's like I've never lived in East Orange and they're like your dad did once for like a year and so they just named this like state-of-the-art performing arts high school after her next she does this whole ode to Tyler Perry which 
while I know he can be a bit cringe, I know that some people have some differing feelings on him. Okay, so he finds out how much money she made for some of her early iconic roles. And he just starts paying her insane amounts of money to do his movies. He, whatever she does, asks for, will double and sometimes quadruple the rate. Like, whatever her asking rate is, he just pads it with as much extra cash as he can. Yeah. And if you remember Taraji P. Henson after she won Oscar. Yeah, or was nominated. Yeah. Yeah. After she made her mark on the industry and then was still being quoted quite low, Tyler Perry is the one who raised her quote so that everyone else when hiring her had to meet that bar. And so... The way he gets women paid, the way he gets black women paid, I think, is something that should not be eschewed from history. She talks about her love of Viola Davis and her respect for Viola's instrument. Few living actors can so convincingly capture what it means to live a life, how it feels to truly ache. Her depth of emotion has no floor. I feel like Viola probably lost it reading that part. (laughs) Viola Davis, as we know, loves – I mean, she wrote the foreword for this book. She wrote – a chapter in her book dedicated to Cicely Tyson. And there's a photo of the two of them together in this book where you can, the look on Viola's face, you're just like, this is a moment. I'm going to post it on Instagram. It's so cute. She gets a Kennedy Center honor and that is a huge deal to her. I mean, it's a huge deal to anyone. And then she gets a call that Barack Obama wants to present her with a presidential medal of honor, which is the highest honor that you can give to a civilian. And she thinks she's being pranked. She thinks that like some rando is calling her trying to get a rise out of her and she's like, no thanks. And then they're like, no, that is real. And she ends up being the last person that Barack Obama gave a medal to during his presidency. Then in 2012, she does The Trip to Bountiful, which is a play that she does with James Earl Jones. And she is literally in her 80s and she is up there every night projecting, doing her best. It is like incredible. She does 187 performances And she ends up winning Tonys for it. Like, a lot of Tonys. She ends up getting an honorary Oscar, which she calls Arthur, her friend, to let her know that it's finally happened. And he has just passed away. And that was a really joyful and heartbreaking moment for her. And then there's a whole chapter about, like, I mean, the the downside of living to 94 is you outlive everybody. Her siblings both died in the 90s. She doesn't mention that till now. Everybody she loves basically dies. But she becomes friends with Oprah and... She, this is funny, for Oprah's 50th birthday, she knits her a blanket to show her like love for Oprah because she's like, what do you buy a billionaire? You you can't, you have to knit something. And then she gives Oprah this present. And then it turns out that she was not invited to Oprah's birthday. And Oprah's so embarrassed that they, she's like, well, we'll do our own girls thing. And that turns into Oprah's Legends Weekend. That was invented because Oprah felt like bad for forgetting to invite Cicely Tyson to her birthday party. And so now every weekend they have this like huge event with some of the biggest legends, like black female legends in the industry. And Stedman and Gail are always like, we got to put this big old thing on because she forgot to invite you that one time. It's all your fault, Cicely. And then we finally get to the conclusion. I never leave home without my cayenne pepper. I either stash a bottle of liquid extract in my pocketbook or I stick it in the shopping cart. And then she gets into the racial reckoning. What will become of black people and black women in particular? That, as it has been for all of my career, is my chief concern. The way I see it, I'm still here because God isn't finished with me. And when I've completed my job, he'll take me. Until then, I've got plenty to do. I glimpse my purpose every time I'm in the presence of my darling daughter, who I see frequently. Joan and I continue to work on our relationship, as fragile as it is precious. And even as I write of her story, I leave space for her one day to share her own. 
I want to go home knowing that I loved generously, even if imperfectly. I want to feel as if I embodied our humanity so fully that it made us laugh and weep and that it reminded us of our shared frailties. I want to be recalled as one who squared my shoulders in service of black women and as one who made us walk taller and envision greater for ourselves. I want to know that I did the very best I could with what God gave me just as I am. Okay, Ashley, any final thoughts? Uh, Yeah, read this book. I am very interested in like just watching some of her movies and seeing some more of her work I think that I don't know she was just an incredible person who lived an incredible 96 years she lived a lot of lives during that time and I'm very impressed by her yeah I mean this book is like an incredible history lesson and then also like lesson in film and lesson all the greats and just somebody who is like the master of their craft and somebody who takes it so seriously, like all of the facets of what it is to be an artist and be a public person and so, like what it means to perform and have a stage. Yeah. And it's just so thoughtful and interesting the way that she's able to consider all of these perspectives and to know that there is no correct answer and to feel comfortable sitting in the uncertainty and like the process. There's something so incredible about the fact that she died right after this book. And so you're like, there was no change of heart. There was no change of opinion. Like, the idea that you're getting a perspective on somebody's life from the end of it feels really special. Yeah. This week on the Patreon, in a fucking turnabout of things, we are going to have Fundy Fridays, who is a YouTube vlogger who specializes in fundamentalism and the Duggars. And she is going to give us all the background info and all the tea and... Gossip All the stuff that we didn't have. Out. Yeah, the things that we didn't know that made it just a stupid book to us and not a horrifying book to us. And we are going to get deep into the few things that Ginger did give us and everything you wanted to know. It wasn't worth doing an episode, but we will do it on the Patreon and we will have all that cult, evangelical, fundamentalism crazy out there. Yeah. All right. We love you guys. Love you.